How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Welcome to the Story Walking Radio Hour. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, which is the media partner for Omega Institute. You'll find the Story Walking Radio Hour show listed under the Sustainable Living tab on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, or you can access it through my website at storywalking.com. In this episode about farming for self-sufficiency, we will explore a variety of natural farming practices as solutions for addressing food insecurity, food price inflation, pollution caused by factory farming, and industrial food production. Now, have you ever considered raising your own egg-laying chickens? They make great pets. Or have you ever tried canning fruits or vegetables procured from a local farmer? We'll begin learning how to raise free-range chickens and how to preserve food the old-fashioned way. We also hope to talk about some other activities conducive for increasing self-sufficiency. I'm excited to introduce you to my guest, nature lover, friend, and farmer, Michael Mandeville. My husband and I have known Mike and his wife, Christine, for over a dozen years. They recently established K&M Farms, that's Christine and Michael Farms, in Seneca, South Carolina. In addition to holding down full-time corporate jobs, they manage chickens, turkeys, and fish ponds and grow most of their own vegetables. They are high-energy they harvest, cook, and preserve jars of pickled, pickles, fermented vegetables, soups, sauces, and whole meals. With decades of experience in farming, Mike is eager to tell us some stories and share a lot of valuable tips. Before bringing Mike onto the show, however, I'd like to share some inspiration that arose from a story walk that I took exactly 12 years ago today. I was walking down Cedar Avenue gathering litter that had originated from a local McDonald's restaurant. I picked up four cardboard containers, one that had contained a Big Mac, one for a double quarter pounder, one for a Chicken McNugget Happy Meal, and one that had held 10 McNuggets. That last package had the marketing tagline or slogan, Get Nuggetized, which I find a little bit creepy. At that time, I had just finished reading an investigative analysis of of McDonald's fast food in Michael Pollan's eye-opening book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. The McDonald's chapter is the last of seven chapters that uncover the history of the industrial monoculture corn industry. The coincidence of finding a bunch of garbage representative of McDonald's junk food prompted me to take the trash home to examine it a little more closely and do some math calculations. Junk food 
describes factory processed food that is high in calories, fat, sugar, and salt, and low in dietary fiber, protein, vitamins, minerals, and other nutrients. Indeed, the nutrient information on each package indicated high levels of fat, ranging from 48% to 57% of total calories of the meals. The sodium levels were as high as 1,380 milligrams for a single serving. The dietary fiber content was zero across the board. Junk food. Pollen writes about how 13 of the 38 ingredients used to make McNuggets are derived from corn, including the factory corn-fed chicken, the corn flour and corn starch batter, and the partially hydrogenated corn oil. With regards to the calories, Pollen comments on how the growing and processing of McDonald's food required 10 times as many calories of fossil fuel energy compared to the calorie content of the food itself. Ten times the energy is extracted from fossil fuel for production. Like, wow. Pollen also mentions the pollution created by synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, which that was introduced in the early 1900s and was used to boost corn production. He states, when humankind acquired the power to fix nitrogen, and we're talking synthetically, the basis of soil fertility shifted from a total reliance on the energy of the sun to a new reliance on fossil fuel. What had been a local sun-driven cycle of fertility in which legumes fed the corn, which fed the livestock, which in turn, with their manure, fed the corn, was now broken. Pollen writes about how the invention of synthetic fertilizer removed the natural biodynamic process from farming. He also informs us about how synthetic fertilizer evaporates into the air where it transforms into nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas, and where it acidifies in the rain, and acidifies the rain. So, in contrast to factory farm poultry, free-range backyard chickens can be fed homegrown grains and vegetables, and they can be allowed to forage for insects and plants, all of which improves the nutrient quality of their eggs and their meat. At the same time, free-roaming chickens distribute their nitrogen-rich manure in a most efficient and nature-friendly manner across fields and gardens. Inspired by the McDonald's trash, I wrote an article in 2010 titled Nuggets of Wisdom, and I launched a nutrition website that I called Wake Up People, where I promoted farm fresh food and cautioned readers about synthetic ingredients, including GMOs, agricultural chemicals, partially hydrogenated oils, high fructose corn syrup, toxic food dyes, and preservatives. Now, I had a lot of fun with this educational endeavor. And I even like created a chicken comic strip and I painted a crowing rooster as my wake up logo um, is my Rhode Island red rooster. And then um, I was out story walking two years later along Cedar Avenue and I came across a damp flattened pile of red and brown paper trash that was smushed into a form resembling my Rhode Island red rooster. Amused by this, I took a photo of it. And then further down Cedar Avenue, I found a Chinese fortune on a slip of paper, and it said, 
you have a keen sense of humor and love a good time. I was also amused by this. Then near the end of my walk, this is later in the morning, a rooster crowed from a nearby yard. And that was just like so totally fun and validating. Um, then a couple days after that, I returned to Cedar Avenue to see if the trash rooster was still there. And I found it had been transformed by car traffic running over it into a chicken, a running chicken, as if you know, it was running as if startled into action by the alarming crow of a rooster, which is really funny. Um, the trash chicken appeared to be running atop a crack in the road, as if the crack was the road itself. And it is this memory which prompts me to share a silly little riddle here. Here goes. Okay. Why did the chicken run to the middle of the road? Why did the chicken run to the middle of the road? Answer? To lay one on the line. <laughs> I love that joke. You may think that's, you know, kind of, you know, you may not, but I do. Anyway, um, my wake up website was my first endeavor at presenting healthy alternatives to our industrialized mass market food system. Then I started discovering and following websites that were more effective than mine, laying it on the line. And I let my wake-up website go. I shifted my focus to story walking, this divinely guided process that has led me into helping promote the brilliant work of other people like Mike, Mike Mandeville. Mike is passionate about teaching others how to raise their own poultry and other produce using natural self-sustaining farming methods. Mike will be talking with us about homestead farming, managing chickens, and time-honored methods for at-home food preservation. Imagine pulling a jar from your cupboard filled with homegrown chicken, cabbage, and vegetables and flavored with the subtle zing of hot peppers. Now, that's a happy meal. Okay, so now here to lay it on the line is my guest, Mike Mandeville. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Wendy, how are you doing today? I am great, and I'm so excited to have you here with us. So yeah, let's Me? dive in. Now, can you tell us, like, let's begin with, how long have you been farming, and what got you started? Well, I, uh, I started as a young boy back in 1978 at the age of nine. Uh, my family, uh, we were in Rhode Island, but we moved to a little quaint little place up in Highgate Springs, Vermont, on the Canadian border, on a nice little dirt road. And uh, on that dirt road, we, had a, we were surrounded by farms and beautiful scenery. Um, it was a really, really pleasurable time in my life, and I was really excited about the move. And I got acquainted with the owner of the farm, which was the Fortin Farm, and I made friends with the old fellow. And uh, he decided in the summer to give me a job. So that was my first job. I was very excited. Um, I started out with just <laughs> picking hay and stuff like that, and we kind of graduated me out to the fields um, where he taught me how to plant and how to grow certain vegetables and how to be sustainable. Um, very, very nice old fellow. I really enjoyed the, my time back then in, uh, in 1978. Um, but my father and I always had a garden as well, so I also learned from him. My father was always really, really good at uh, that kind of thing and having a green thumb. We used to go to a lot of yard sales every now and again, and I'd find these magazines out there. Um, it was all about gardening. A lot of the material was like from the 60s, but a lot of old tricks, um, like putting coffee cans around the base of the uh, tomato plants this way here. The, the cutworms don't get on there and little things like that. And I really found a lot of amusement out of uh, some of the stuff that I learned 
Um, and also Farmer's Almanac. Every time we go to a supermarket, you know, which <laughs> was very rare because it was so far away, we had to go to Burlington, um, which was hours away. Um, but every now and again, we get a little bit of, you know, cosmetic stuff and, and things like that. And uh, my mom would always buy me a Farmer's Almanac. That was my favorite book right there. That <laughs> was like the uh, the Bible of, of farming, you know. And yeah. uh, that's pretty much when I started back. Yeah, and then you you um, you also your school. You learned some things at school there. Yes, the school was unbelievable. It was a lot different than Rhode Island. I mean, not knocking Rhode Island, but there's a lot less people uh, where I lived in Vermont. Um, we had a little schoolhouse, a little white schoolhouse. It was kind of like I've always been fond of the 1800s. My life, I probably should have been born then, <laughs> but I've always found it fascinating the way they did things with tools and everything. But getting back to the school, it was just a little schoolhouse, uh, and we had about 12 kids in the class around that. And uh, Mrs. Busco and I had Mrs. Busco, and Mrs. Macy as my teacher. I still remember, and uh, they they got us really involved with farming and agriculture was very, very big because we were surrounded with dairy farms. That's like the heartland of the dairy from New England was in Vermont. So they taught us a lot about farming and, and being sustainable and, and all this stuff about, and also self-sufficiency was one of the big things back then too, because we had the gas crunch back in the seventies. So there was a lot of teaching of planting. We actually did, uh, I remember we had little cups that we put in the window and we did green beans and we took notes of how long it took to germinate and things, different things. We had little experiments we did as a young boy. We also, it was fun. We went out and get leaves out in the fall and we ironed them with this wax paper, put them in the windows, all fun stuff. A lot of poetry. Um, it was all old-fashioned, old-school stuff. And they also had programs where we got involved with the Mississippi Valley Union Wildlife Refuge. And we used to go out, fix bird boxes, and <clears throat> learn about nature. They used to have a lot of people coming in and teaching us about animals and their habitat. But I learned more there than anything. We did a lot of class trips. We went to the mountains. And uh, that's where I learned how to make maple syrup and maple sugar and rock candy. Uh, <clears throat> it's just a little process of getting the sap in the spring and boiling it on an old-fashioned wood stove. And uh, that was the, one of the proudest moments I had was showing my father how to do something because my dad knew everything. <laughs> so it was that, really, that's, uh, that's fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to be able to show him something that I learned for a change. And he just found it very amusing. And, man, he, he, went, he was really happy to have done that. So we, we ended up tapping all the maple trees back there. He had six acres, and uh, we tapped all the trees out there in Highgate Springs and we had a lot of fun. It was good memories. Life was easy. You know, we used to drink from a garden hose back then, you know. <laughs> so, so, so tell me, yeah, yeah um, what about your first chickens? Like, when did you start getting an interest yeah, in uh, chickens and how did that all play out? Yep, I, uh, I have asked my father. My father knew I was very responsible. I had my own garden, um, and I was producing my own vegetables and everything, and I weeded. I was very faithful and loyal to what I was doing. So he knew that I would be responsible, so I had asked my father permission. My dad was really, uh, uh, how would you say, meticulous, I should say, about the property. He liked it neat and perfect. He says, you know what, we got some woods back there, You've, and he showed me a little spot where it would be okay with his permission. He said, I don't want to see him or anything, being the fact because he's proud of his property. So... I ended up meeting uh, a, a lot of farmer friends from working at Rosier's uh, Meat Market at the age of nine also. That was another place I worked at, too, and that's where I learned how to <clears throat> butcher and everything at a young age by watching Mr. Uh, LaRush doing the, the work. 
and he also we got involved with uh, making beef jerky back then too. Um, but he had connections with people who had chickens, and I met this old fellow, um, and he told me, you know, he says I have these chickens for sale. He says, but they're three years old. He says, and he says, and I don't want to do you wrong, son, because I know you worked hard for your money. And uh, I remember me and my brothers before that too. Um, I collect all my money uh, working on the farm so I could get chickens because that was my dream. And uh, I remember we we walked the sides of uh, Route 7 and we'd pick up cans and bottles and we'd put them in bags and clean the side of the road and then we'd go to this old little Ford store and uh, we used to cash in and they'd get candy. And I would just keep the money and put it in my pocket. My brothers looked at me like I was kind of weird. But I put it in an envelope and once I got that money, I went to see that old fellow to get back to the story. And uh, he told me, I'm not going to sell you those chickens. They're three years old. They're not going to lay well. He says, I'm going to cut you a deal soon. So we, uh, and my father made it clear, no roosters. <laughs> so that was kind of, he didn't want to get woken up. Uh, but I ended up getting a couple of uh, hens and stuff like that. And uh, I didn't have money for wood or anything. So I ended up using a hatchet and uh, prior to uh, getting the chickens. And uh, I made my own pen out of little logs there, about four inches around. And I tied them together with rope. And if I had nails, I used them. <laughs> and <clears throat> I did everything kind of like they did in the old-fashioned days. And I put moss on the roof and leaves and dirt. And, and believe it or not, I actually made it waterproof, believe it or not. You get a couple of drips here and there, but it was all good. And uh, I lived up to my promise to my dad. I kept working the, the farms and helping Rosier's uh, meat market and all that stuff. And that was able, enabled me to get grain. And uh, I've, I've, me and my dad had competitions of who could make the biggest zucchinis. <laughs> so everybody likes them small, but me and my dad had this thing about getting these big two by fours out of the garden. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, uh, but, so, but so, so yeah, fun. back, yeah. So, um, yeah, back to you know the chickens. Like, okay, so you, you're raising chickens now. Um, what do you feed your chicks and your chickens? You know, I'm sure you, different stages. You've got you, yeah, um, yep. well, different things, right? Right. Well, I get my chickens from local people that I know here in South Carolina. I reside now in South Carolina. Um, but I get them from people that I know. Uh, Jason Dickard's a good friend of mine. He lives up near Table Rock Mountain. Uh, he's a wicked great poultry farmer. And I've been doing this for since 1978. And I've done it. I had a good size, well, not a good size farm, but I had a, a, a farm in Rhode Island, as you know. And we were so sustainable there, we we didn't get anything at the supermarket then. But being uh, baby chicks, you don't want to get them from these big hatcheries if you don't have to because they get Merrick's disease vaccinated. Yes, chickens can get Merrick's disease, but why treat them uh, ahead of time and take that chance because you are what you eat? Well, so you get them from a good farm, and you can kind of analyze the baby chicks. They get pasty butt and stuff like that. That's different things, and that's with diet. But getting back to diet, you want to stop these birds out with a non-medicated grain. Everybody thinks about getting medicated grains. You know, that's not the answer to everything. Always try to stay away from that stuff. So what I do is I get, it's called a chick starter crumble, and it's 20%. Now, the higher the percentage you want to use when these birds are small, I also, with the water, I also give them, it's, a, it's an electrolyte. It's loaded with all kinds of vitamins and minerals. That It's like a Gatorade, and I give that for the entire life of the bird. So their water is always green like Gatorade, and I've never had a problem. Well, I can't say I've never had a problem. I mean, I've had some issues where, you know, one will get sick or something, and you got to nip it in the bud. Um, and what I recommend, the most common diseases for chicken 
is a uh, uh, coccidiosis and Merrick's disease. And teramycin is a go-to for a medication that I recommend to have on hand in the event of. Um, you administer that for two weeks, and then you want to make sure you don't eat any eggs for even two weeks after that just to be safe. Um, and you don't eat any meat um, from the chickens as well. you got to wait at least two weeks. But they can get diseases. But all in all, um, in the last, well, when I had my farm up north, uh, we had that one for 10 years, and I only had one incident. And that was bringing chickens in from an outside farm. Um, that's another thing I don't recommend. Um, but with that said, as they get older, um, chickens, you want to give them laying pellets and reduce the protein intake to 16 to 14% um, and so forth. And uh, I get pellets at that age, too. And I, usually about six months, they're ready to lay, 22 to 24 weeks. And that's, you want to make sure you start administrating uh, laying pellets prior to because uh, they, have, they contain a lot of calcium. And have eggs, you got to have a lot of calcium. Or you can make your own grain and just add a crushed oyster shell and that'll be perfect as well. Wow. Okay. Hey, Mike, it's time for our first station break, so we're going to hold these thoughts. Um, listeners, I'm your host, Wendy Natalie Fashon, here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, and you're listening to the Story Walking Radio Hour. The purpose and mission of the Story Walking Radio Hour is to open minds and foster difference-making here on planet Earth. To find more episodes, please visit my website at storywalking.com. We'll be back in a moment to learn more about farming for self-sufficiency with farmer Mike Mandeville of K&M Farms. In the next segment, Mike will tell us about how he preserves the food he grows on his farm for long-term storage and consumption. So stay tuned. How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. How can parents help their teenage children navigate the challenging years between childhood and adulthood? How might parents continue to gently exert a positive influence during this critical stage of growth and development? Read The Difference Maker, written by parent and story-walking radio host, Wendy Natterney Fashan. This book shares the story of her late son, Neil, their relationship, and the wisdom of an enlightened teenager. The Difference Maker is a coming-of-age collection of stories that parents can share and discuss with their kids. Go to the storywalking.com website, download The Difference Maker, and become inspired. Why would God design a heart-shaped flower that cries? In a picture book titled The Angel Heart, a curious child picks such a flower and carefully pulls it apart, one poetic petal at a time, to reveal the answer. Discover the miracle of the heart and its role in providing comfort, joy, and peace. Written in the language of love, this uplifting story is sure to open up conversations about emotions, spiritual beliefs, the circle of life, or even fairy magic. Give your favorite child the gift of love. 
The Angel Heart by Wendy Natterney Fashan, available through Amazon and Balboa Press. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. Welcome back to the Story Walking Radio Hour here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, and we're talking about farming for self-sufficiency with farmer Mike Mandeville of K&M Farms. Uh, Mike, last time my husband and I saw you, you sent us home with a few jars, and in one of them was a chicken, cabbage, and vegetable dinner that had a deliciously hot peppery accent oh my god it was so good um so tell us about i know this week you put up a whole bunch of chicken soup i think um tell us about that whole process all right yeah what i did is uh i started out over the weekend i had uh i did a smoked chicken in the smokehouse and uh cooked it slow day long um with applewood and uh but anyway, what, what, after I got done with that, we had a lot of leftovers, obviously, because we each had like a leg of it. We had the whole bird left over. So my neighbor had given me two big whole collard greens. They were gigantic and two cabbages. And we had carrots and stuff from his garden. I had onions and uh, I had so many little peppers uh, from the garden that I preserved. Um, so I put everything that we got from his garden, my garden, and the chicken in the smokehouse, I kind of I put in a big stock pot. It's a 30-quart stock pot, and, and I used a gas heater. But my wife sat outside with me. It was a beautiful day, and we chopped everything up nice and small and put everything in that stock pot and mixed it up. We put some uh, fresh rosemary, oregano, and spices and stuff to make it all good, and we put some chicken stock that we had in there and uh, some spring water. We got that whole thing up to a boil for about an hour and a half. And uh, we kept a couple of quarts for ourselves, and we sterilized about 27 jars of uh, that we had, and I washed them, sterilized them. And what it is, I used a pressure canner. And uh, with that being said, there's no, bear in mind, there's no preservatives going into this food. There's no additives. It's straight out just what you're making. So we ladled all the stuff into the jars. We, what you want to do is take the uh, pressure canner and add about three inches of water to the pressure canner. And there's a plate that goes inside before you put the jars in that elevates it just about uh, maybe a, a quarter of an inch. So we put off, uh, it'll hold seven jars, the one that we have. Um, depending on where you live, if, you've got a, if you're doing soup, and I'll go over that too, but if you're up in an area like where you are in Rhode Island, you're, you're probably just about 40 feet above sea level. Um, where I live, I'm 1,200 feet above sea level. So people are probably saying, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, when you're pressure cooking, um, it makes a big difference. So if you, if the, a recipe is calling for you to pressure cook the item for 45 minutes at 1,200, at 1200 pounds, and you're at, let's say they're giving you at sea level, you want to do less than that to a place that I'm at. But what I did is it called for 15, so I put it at 12, 12 pounds. So basically what you're doing is you put the cans in there, you, you put the lid on it, you have a seal on it, you want to put vegetable oil on the seal, of, I use olive oil uh, on that black seal, and then you twist it, and you don't put that, that, that weight on the, uh, on the fitting. You leave the fitting open, 
there's a little button on the top of the pan that faces you. When that gets enough pressure in there and it's hot enough to a boil, it'll pop up. And out of that valve in the back, steam will start coming out. At that time, when you get an even streamline of steam is when you stop the clock. That 45 minutes from that point, you put the weight on, and you watch the pressure go to 12. Now you want to reduce your stove uh, temp so it stays at 12. If it starts going over, you just pick up on the weight, let it get back to 12, put it back down. And you want to keep it set the stove where it stays right at 12. So you let it go for 45 minutes, and then the only thing you do after that is you just shut the stove off, and then the temperature will start dropping down slowly by itself. And that can take up to 45 minutes to an hour. So it's a long process. Um, it's a read a book or, <laughs> or whatever. It's after your spouse and enjoy, have a nice sweet tea and enjoy the day. Uh, but it is time-consuming, uh, but well worth it. And uh, if you had smaller jars, um, you can actually put uh, 14 or more. They're a little bit shorter, and you can kind of stack them up in there, and you get the same same thing. So basically, after it goes down to zero, it's safe to take the weight off. It's safe to undo the lid. Then what you want to do is I put a towel down on the counter, and you want to keep about three to four inches of space between the jars as to let them cool down. And after that process is done, you'll start hearing the lids pop. And what's happening is the gases are coming out, and there's no oxygen left inside the, the, the jar. And once that process happens, the lid will sink inward. So I always do a test. Um, I'll do this, and then I'll just walk away. And then hours later, I'll go by, and I'll touch the lids, the tops. If there's any play where it can go up and down, that's not good. Put it in the refrigerator. Check to see what went wrong. Maybe take the lid off. There could be a little bit of debris on the lid. Just got to make sure it's clean and it's got a good seal. It could have a little bit of rust on the ring, or it could have <clears throat> uh, a burr or some kind of dimple on the lid. So you might want to just change that whole setup out and redo it, make sure you redo it. And with that being said, that product will last up to 10 years, and that's, that's what I've been wow. doing. Yeah. Yep. Hey, quick question, Mike. Yeah, when you when yep. you um, are putting the jars in, you know, getting them ready to put into the bath or you know the the um, the, the pressure Perfect, cooker, yeah. how tightly do you yep. how, how tightly do you put on the lids? You just want to put them hand tight because you don't want to talk them down. You want to put them hand tight. That's a, a very good point because if you crank them down, then the air won't be able to escape, obviously. So you want to just kind of hand tighten them, not over crank them, but leave enough, you know what I mean? And once that heat gets mm -hmm. going, it'll actually shrink more than lids and, and allow more gas to come out. So you don't want to go too loose either. So it was like a okay. little happy man, yeah. but that was a very good point. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Okay. Yep. Now, yep. yeah, um, you've also given us jars of, of fermented vegetables, and they are phenomenal. Um, I mean, we use them, yep. gosh, you put them on eggs, we put them in sandwiches, you put, on, put them on yep. a burger. I mean, yeah, just so much you can do with that. And, of course, they're so healthy for you. Um, how do you prepare and preserve fermented foods? And, like, what are your supplies, right. your ingredients, the steps for that? Well, one thing, I'll, I'll start with, with fermenting. First of all, we all know it's a great probiotic. It's good for your body. It's good for digesting and everything. I also, like, we're getting into the holiday season, so a lot of people are making apple pies and stuff like that, and they don't they take the apple, the core, uh, the peel, I mean, whatever leftovers, whatever they don't want, even the season, they throw it away. What I do is you take the apple cores, the peels, and you put them in a mason jar. Now, here's the key factor. Whenever you're fermenting, it has to be either well water or spring water. You cannot use city water because city water's got chlorine and bromide, all kinds of things that just kill bacteria. Um, 
really not good at all. But if you're using apples, you can basically just get away with water. And if you don't have like a fermentable lid, it's like a rubber top, uh, and it has like a little uh, nipple on the top where it lets the gas escape and you put the ring on it, you can always just be simple, just put a coffee filter on it and put a ring on it. As simple as that, right down the date um, for vinegar, yeah, apple cider vinegar, you want to wait probably seven to and within seven to 14 days, it's ready. You, you'll know just by sampling it. But what I do to help the process is you want to help the wild yeast that's in the apple. So what I do is I, I feed it two tablespoons of sugar. So I put that, and then you want to use a wooden spoon. You don't want to use nothing stainless steel. It's always a wooden spoon uh, when you're dealing with this because of bacteria reasons and other things. Um, but you want to mix it up at least every other day. Just give it a little mixture, like two to three turns. And then put a new coffee filter on it and put the lid on it, put it right back in the counter. It's got to be in a cool, dark place. About 70 degrees is good. Um, and then if you wanted to make yourself like a sauerkraut, um, like we get fresh, we're getting good cabbage here in South Carolina now because it's cold and there's no insects and nothing to bother them. And they like the cool weather, the tolerance of frost. Um, you want to chop them up real, real fine. Uh, my wife and I get together and we make this big batch. And all you you got to use a, a sea salt. Um, you can't use iodine salt to ferment. Um, so basically, you've got all your cabbage in a bowl, and then again, you got to use wood. You use like a wooden mallet or or something that you might have in the house that you could use. Um, and you want to kind of push down uh, after the salt is in there. Just mix it up with your hands, and then stop mashing it. Then you'll start seeing it get soft and start shrinking. Once you got a little puddle of water on the bottom, now you're doing really good because that's the stuff that's going to make it ferment. So you want to start kneading it like bread dough for about 15 minutes. And uh, you, you can put your favorite program on or something while you're doing it <laughs> or, or your favorite music. But uh, after that's done... Or listen, or listen good... to one of my episodes on the, on that, the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. 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 You just had to <laughs> After you get that all mashed up and everything and, and all going good, uh, you want to take a ladle and you want to. Oh, you're always going to have at least an inch headspace in these jars. Um, and I'll t I'll get into that after. But what I do is I leave about two inches from the top of the jar. I, I just pack it in, and then you put you put spring water in there. Give it a little mix. Pack it down again. And now you want to put it's it's a glass uh, weight is what they call it. For glass fermentating weight. You can look it up. Um, they're very easy to get. There are five that come to a box. they got some for regular malt jars and some for wide malt jars. You place that on top of the product, and that's the product is all at the bottom of the weight, and all above the weight is all clean water. Now you can do the same thing. You put a, the ring in a coffee filter, or you can use the fermenting lid like I do, and just make sure if you're using a fermenting lid that it's sterile, it's clean. Um, you can dip it in bleach and water and make sure you rinse it off really well, or you can just boil it really quick. Uh, I just boil it quick and put it on, um, just like doing baby bottles, um, basically. And then uh, you want to write down the date once again, and, and that, again, it's uh, anywhere between seven weeks to two months. And you want to, you don't have to mix this one up. You just leave it alone. And then any product that comes above the water can turn to botulism. But if it's underwater and you can visually see that, you never have to worry about it at all. It's always going to, if it's underwater, you cannot get botulism at all. Um, but you're, you're going to see it's called the mother. Uh, there'll be a film that's going to grow around the earlock. That's just the giant yeast cake. 
Um, I, I make beer and wine, and you'll notice the wine, when you're making that, it sinks to the bottom, uh, the, the yeast. But in this case, it, it goes to the top. So don't worry and think that it went bad. That's actually the good bacteria that your body needs. So you want to just mix that in. And then if you want to stop the fermentation process, basically is you're just putting it in the fridge and you're, you're slowing down the yeast from doing any more. And that's a, it's as simple as that. And then uh, you were talking about that relish that I had made you all, and uh, that was a garden relish. We had a ton of green tomatoes. So we picked all the green tomatoes. We picked red onions, white onions, red cabbage, green cabbage, and all kinds of vegetables, carrots. We chopped it all up real, real, real small, real tiny. That took a good bit of time. <laughs> and we filled up a big bowl in pretty much the same way as uh, making the cab- uh, the sauerkraut. There's two tablespoons of sea salt, and I mix it up with your hands, get that going, and basically we just ladle that in a jar. But in each jar, I put two to three tablespoons of sugar with the sea salt to get that sweet, sour taste. Um, and then just let that ferment, same thing, and uh, test it after seven weeks. If you like it sour, uh, keep it in there a little bit more. If you want a little more sweetness, now's the time to add maybe a little more sugar. But the secret is uh, spring water and sea salt. Don't want to use iodine. Iodine salt will not work, you know. And you know what I love about this is that you know Mike 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 delivers you know gives us all, all these these bottles and um, so we bring them home and and we have these great great meals and great fermented products and then we save the bottles and we bring them back to Mike the bottles and the lids yep. right and I mean yep, what, how can you recycle any better than that right I mean it doesn't even go in the recycle bin it goes back to you it doesn't go you know off to some right. recycle center it's like awesome right right exactly yep exactly and uh, that. And that's the, the cycle that we've been doing, actually, uh, you and I and your family for quite a while. Um, the other thing is, too, is a lot of people don't realize, uh, getting back to poultry, that eggs, they think that eggs, man, you've you got to put them, in, you, they come out of the chicken, you got to put them in the refrigerator. Well, here's a little secret that I learned <laughs> in my time uh, of doing this. Um, if, you th- if you have an egg and you get it out of the barn, it's got, you know, they're not always clean. I try to keep the nest boxes as clean as possible, um, but you're always going to get a, an egg that has a little something you don't want on it. So what I do is I use a little bit of sandpaper and gently sand just where, it's, where there's a little bit of dirt. And uh, you put that in an, in an egg tray. You keep the air cell up. And uh, the air cell is the largest part of the egg. That's where the uh, air comes in uh, for the uh, embryo. Um, and basically, people don't know you can keep that egg for a year at room temperature in your kitchen. And back in the 1800s, if you look at all the movies, Little House on the Prairie, they all had baskets of eggs on the counter. Um, they weren't in refrigerators. So you take that egg, you put it in the refrigerator, and you just shorten the life of that egg. Um, if you wash the egg with water, same rule applies. Now you have to put it in the refrigerator to keep it from spoiling because you actually put water on it and water into the air cell. So you damage the egg. Um, and all the eggs that I deal with uh, <clears throat> moving forward are going to be fertile because I have rooster for each uh, chicken, I mean, for, for a batch of chickens. And the whole idea is to make more chickens. So with my, you know, with the way I do it, you know. That's awesome. Okay. It's time for another break here. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us here on the Story Walking Radio Hour. Please help us grow our community of listeners and difference makers so we can work together to build a better world. All the Story Walking podcasts are free online. Go to storywalking.com, my website, to learn more. Uh, I'm your host, Wendy Natalie Fashon, and we're talking about 
Farming for Self-Sufficiency with Mike Mandeville of K&N Farms. Our conversation will continue after this station break. How can you make a difference on this crazy planet? Listen to nature-inspired stories and interviews with environmental educators for some new ideas. Sustainable Living News writer, nature walker, and youth educator Wendy Natterney Fashon hosts the Story Walking Radio Hour to talk about issues that matter and to introduce you to people who are coming up with creative, sensible solutions. Let's engage with Earth, with spirit, and with one another heart-to-heart to to solve problems and co-create more meaningful life stories. Tune in to Nature's Loving Vibes every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. here on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Omega Institute, offering workshops, retreats, and online learning dedicated to awakening the best in the human spirit. For over 40 years, Omega has seen more than 1 million people come through its doors to grow, learn, and find a greater sense of purpose. Located in Rhinebeck, New York, just 90 miles north of New York City, Omega's natural environment and quiet pace allow for extraordinary experiences to unfold. Learn more at eomega.org or call 800-944-1001. Delight your kids with an enchanting journey by reading the Paper Doll Kids Children's Book by Deborah Beauvais and Janine Sullivan. There's even a catchy tune, Kids for Love Song, produced by Bob Sherwood and sung by kids just like yours. The story weaves around seven paper dolls flying around the world doing good deeds as they bring important attention to our endangered animal friends. There's even a magical ring with a universal message. Kids become interested in service projects, action through compassion, and planting seeds that nurture positive change. The Paper Doll Kids and Kids for Love Song are a production of the Kids for Love Project. Get the book now on Amazon Kindle and the song on CD Baby or iTunes. High school student Neil Fashan dreamed of leading other young people away from hopelessness to helpfulness, from loneliness to friendship, and from inertia to difference-making. Then, in college, he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. After Neil died at age 20, his mother, Wendy, began to sort through the memorabilia he'd accumulated over the years. Artwork, notebooks, journals, personal notes, and letters. She's assembled these memories into a timely ebook called The Difference Maker. Parents and teens will appreciate this collection of stories about kindness, resilience, faith, and love. Go to thestorywalking.com website, download The Difference Maker, and become inspired. Edesia is a U.S. nonprofit dedicated to the dream of ending childhood malnutrition for millions of children around the world. Through the manufacture of Plumpy Nut and other nutrient-rich, peanut-based, ready-to-use foods, Edesia has already delivered life and hope to nearly 1 million children in over 26 developing countries. To find out how you can join Edesia's dream of ending childhood malnutrition, please visit ediciaglobal.org. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. We're back with the Storywalking Radio Hour here on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon. 
And we're talking about farming for self-sufficiency with farmer Mike Mandeville of K&N Farms. Okay, Mike, so like, why is self-sufficiency so important, especially at this point in time? Well, I, uh, I've, I've been self-sufficient when I had my farm up north in Rhode Island for a good 10 years. And uh, basically, uh, the way I see things is like, well, we moved to Vermont back in the 70s. We had our own garden and everything, and it was too far to go to the store. But life became too much easy for everybody, uh, everybody to realize in a supermarket. I've actually seen in some cases uh, in one article, I don't kill animals. I actually go to the supermarket where they make it, and I find that kind of comical. <laughs> but uh, but self-sufficiency to me is very important because we don't, with the way things are going now, the price of grain, the, the price of fuel, the economy, I see a, bit, a real uh, decrease in the economy right now. Uh, matter of fact, even my place of employment, I was uh, moving 45 trailers a day, and yesterday I only moved eight all day. So that just goes to show you things are slowing down. So it's really important, and not only that, but the, just the stuff they put in the products today, uh, the way they do their chickens, uh, giving them uh, arsenic and then giving them an antibiotic to make them grow faster. Um, I'm not about that. I'm all about being healthy. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, yeah. we put this. We started this farm here in South Carolina, and uh, it's beautiful because we had a, a set of waterfalls that nobody even knew existed. Even when we bought the house, it was like a jungle of the woods back here. Um, so Christine and I, we cut a lot of trees. I got a sawmill, uh, sawmill all the lumber to make the, the barn. Uh, we had COVID to deal with at the time. It took me a year to get the sawmill. I bought a front end loader and a backhoe, which also took me a year just to get the backhoe. Um, so it was a struggle being with the, and, and being the coronavirus. And there's another good reason to be so sustainable is what about the next pandemic? And, and will there be one? I, me personally, I'm, I'm almost positive <laughs> with the way things are going. But uh, we decided, uh, we did some research. Uh, if you live in Rhode Island, you have to put a liner in order to have a pond. But the real cool thing about South Carolina is the red clay. Um, so basically, I did some research and locals. Uh, my neighbor across the street, he wants to be uh, so sustainable like myself. He had a pond, and he's told me about the pond, and I'm teaching him about the other stuff. So it was really cool. So basically what I did is I used a backhoe, and I made a, a pond about 20 feet deep. Uh, she's about 35, 40 feet in length and probably about 25 going right to left. Um, but what I did is I bought a, a pump that pumps out of the uh, the creek, and I ran a 100-foot hose, fire hose, up to the where the pond is, and I kind of hit everything so you don't see it. And it's just one pull of that pump, <laughs> and it, I, I pumped right out of the waterfalls and filled up that entire pond in a day. And after running it over, running it over several times before filling it, it's like a big clay bowl, which is kind of cool down here in the south. Um, so meanwhile, after that was filled, my wife and I started setting traps in the, in the creek, and uh, we did a little hike, and three creeks come into one. And that, there's a big pool there. So we're catching crayfish and minnows and red-tailed chubs, which is another type of uh, minnow. Um, and we were filling up the uh, the pond for about presumably four or five months. Meanwhile, I ordered 100 catfish and 100 bass from a farm down near Columbia. Um, and he was going to be delivering. He told me the fish, were, and this was done in the spring, the fish would be ready in October for pickup in uh, a farm feeding grain store in Westminster, South Carolina. So 
I went and get them fish, and uh, they were in these big, big clear bags. They they put them in there, and uh, you got to bring them back to the pond, let them fool around, and let them acclimate to the temperature. Add a little bit of the pond water to it, and until uh, they get used to it, and then you set them free. So now they're they're about 16, 18 inches long. It's only been a year, um, but we'll be eating them next year, which will be kind of nice. Um, and then. So that, that's what we did as far as uh, fish goes. But getting back to the chickens. Um, yeah, first, first, Mike, uh, yeah, before you go to the chickens, yeah. talk a little bit yep. about your pond because I think it's really cool. It's like you've created an ecosystem with plants, right? So be, right? And, yeah. Right. Yep, we, we, we put a lot of uh, plant life out there, and a lot of things moved in on its own. Uh, it's loaded with bullfrogs now, and now we get these big herring gulls that come in there and they eat the, the frogs and I got some uh, water snakes that moved in. Um, it, it's really, really neat. Uh, a lot of the stuff that just came on its own, um, and a lot. Some fish eggs got dropped in there for just some of these birds that come in. And I, I got, I saw two kivers in there, uh, two <laughs> sunfish that I never put in there. So it, it's pretty neat with all that, you know. So, but it's just, it's, it's, and it's also very pretty to see from the house too, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. But okay, now you go to the back, chickens. <laughs> yeah, so getting back, with, you know, as far as the chickens go, uh, if you're going to just start out, I strongly recommend a multi-type, a multi-purpose bird. And by being so, you want something that's going to kind of go fast. Um, you don't want to eat anything that's, a, you know, a year over a year old because uh, then you're dealing with something too tough. But I strongly recommend, like, a Rhode Island white Um the, the male roosters get up to about eight pounds in about six months, and the females they stay around five six pounds, and you know, and it doesn't cost a lot to feed them because they're not these big enormous birds. I know they have what they call a meat bird on the market. It's called a jumbo Cornish X rocks. Those are genetically modified. Um, if you're not experienced, I don't recommend it because they grow so fast that they die of congenitive heart disease, and uh, <clears throat> you got to give them a lot of electrolytes. You got to make sure that the feed and water's level with their backs because they become lazy. Um, you want to make them stand and walk as much as... But they just grow so fast that in seven to eight weeks, they're like 10 or 12 pounds. So, but you're really going to know what you're doing. They're, they're eating machines. Um, they'll eat you out of house and home if you're not ready for it. <laughs> but I, I, so, so I what, recommend what, like a... Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, well, and what, I just, what you can finish up, but I also wanted, you to, wanted to ask about how much um, the egg production for different types of hens. Right. So that's the thing with Rhode Island whites. The females, uh, on an average, most chickens will lay about 200 eggs a year, 188 to 200. These Rhode Island whites will put out 255 eggs in a year. So, and they're a brown wow. egg. Wow. Um, yep. So, and they have, uh, you know, I'm getting wine dots. That's a good multi-purpose. And they, the, the males get very big. Um, and they're pretty. They got they got blue lace, black lace. They had all kinds of wine dot chickens. I'm getting uh, buff dolphins are very good, and and barred rocks. Um, they're black with white checkers. Um, but I'm gonna have a big variety that you know. And basically, we're gonna have a full blown hatchery, and we're gonna be hatching out chickens. I'll sex them and separate them with these Gouda towers, um, and whatever we have. A lot of people don't want roosters, and that's fine with me because me and Christine gonna have a quarter acre of just them roaming around. Um, and that'll be for the freezer um, and also for canning. I'm going to be canning a lot of the chicken, too, because, like I said, it lasts for 10 years. Basically, you cook the chicken the same way, and you want to put a headspace of water one inch below the jar, 
and you do you pressure cook that for an hour rather than 45 minutes because it's meat. Um, <clears throat> but with that being said, um, we uh, Christina and I took it upon ourselves. We leaf load all the woods. Uh, we, we cleared it all out. We left a lot of trees for shade, so there's not much stress on the birds. And uh, we planted uh, winter rye, and that'll hold the clay down because I excavated all the property, and it'll lock everything in. And I put fescue, so I did a 50-50 mix, which is all coming up now, and it looks really pretty, dark green, and that will be great for them free-ranging. Um, and, and another thing that people can do to be sustainable is possibly, you know, get into mushroom farming. Um, Christine and I, we cut down a oak tree. You want to use oak if you're going to do shiitake mushrooms. But the neat thing about nature is oak has this resistance to bacteria. It's almost like a, your own antibiotic, so to speak. So you want to cut the tree down and whatever you're going to utilize to inoculate the tree, you know, get into that real quickly. Um, is basically you want to let that tree stay, you know, be dead and above and keep it lifted off the ground for about two weeks. I went three to be safe. And then wherever you've got a beer cut where there's no bark, you want to take melted beeswax and paint wherever you, you did your chainsaw cut. And then basically you just order your inoculation. They're like little uh, wooden bits, and it's got the, uh, the inoculation. Um, I forget the, the proper word I want to use. Um, but the mushroom spores are all in there. And basically, you just take a 3 8 bit, and you drill it an inch in, and you bang it in with a wooden mallet, and you put 100 of them throughout the tree. And wherever you got one, you just put beeswax and paint it on there, and then you just put it in a cool uh, place out in the shade, and uh, you want to water it like you would water your garden. And uh, about takes about 10 to 12 months for shiitakes. I mean, you get different types of mushrooms, and it can be a lot quicker. But uh, the shiitakes are presumably about 10 months, you know. Now, I'm looking forward to some shiitake, uh, shiitake turkey soup. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know? Yeah, there you they're go, just right? Starting, uh, <laughs> they're starting to come out now, actually. Uh, me and Christine went check out the, the logs, and they're just starting to break through now. So it's kind of exciting to see. Uh, but before long, I will have that, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. And you're doing peanuts? You did peanuts yes, this peanuts. year? And that was pretty cool. Yes. Yeah. And your introduction about legumes and uh, nitrogen, uh, they actually is one of the best things for the garden, for nitrogen, uh, natural way, you know. Um, and when I planted uh, up north, too, as well, I always believed in the three sisters. Um, and that's, you know, you got your corn, you want to plant beans, the beans can climb the, the corn stalk. You put peas, the peas climb the corn stalk. And the peas and the beans are producing nitrogen for the corn that the corn needs. And it basically it helps everything out. And I used to plant squash uh, in between the rows, and that kept the weeds out. And that's what you call the three sisters. Uh, yeah, it the all works together. The, right, the legumes, and then you got the corn, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is Mike. This has been great. Wow, a lot of fantastic information. Um, you know, we'll we'll get some learning resources for listeners that we can you know put some links on on the podcast page. So um, yep. people look out, look and for that. A, and yeah, I have an email address too. If anybody want to add any questions, well, yeah, what's that, Mike? If the, yeah, I get an email address. It's a, the letter K is in Christine, N is in Nevada, and then M is in Mike. And it's farms, plural, F-A-R-M-S, at gmail.com. And I can even provide a phone number. If anybody's got chickens or they got some kind of disease or don't know what it is, I'm the go-to guy. B-401? Yeah, he is. 793 <laughs> 
fantastic. Thank you, Mike. Okay, it's time yeah. to conclude our episode. Yep, on farming for self-sufficiency. Thank you, thank you, Mike, for sharing your stories, you. your tips, your wisdom. This is yeah, it's been so cool. Um, and listeners, if you have specific questions for Mike, you can email him at knmfarms at gmail dot com. I provide his contact information along with some you know a few valuable links related to today's show on our Dream Vision Seven Radio Network podcast page for this episode. Um, I also let's see. Um, I'd like to give one more shout out here for Food Forest Abundance, which shares and supports the vision of growing food forests everywhere, in every community and every yard around the world for greater self-reliance, healthier food, and improving the climate. Um, food Forest Abundance provides design, education, and consulting for establishing freedom gardens, family food forests, and community food forests. You can find links um, for Food Forest Abundance resources on my podcast page and on my website. The Story Walking Radio Hour airs on the syndicated Dream Vision 7 radio network every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Listen online on your mobile device anywhere, anytime, you know, when you're in the kitchen cooking. Great time to listen to the podcast. Uh, for a full schedule of Dream Vision 7 radio programming, go to dreamvision7radio.com. That's dreamvisions, numeral 7, radio.com. Dream Vision 7 Radio is the media partner for Omega Institute. Thank you for joining us here today on the Story Walking Radio Hour. I'm your host, Wendy Natterney Fashon, with Mike Mandeville. And we wish you all the very best as you envision creating your own natural abundance and story walk your way Once towards again, that. Once again, the Story vision. Walking Radio Hour Take has care. covered a lot of ground. Please join Wendy Natterney Fashon next time for a new edition of the Story Walking Radio Hour. This show airs every Monday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. Listen live on DreamVision7Radio.com, where you can also access archives of previous Story Walking Radio Hour episodes. Find them under the Sustainable Living section. And visit the StoryWalking.com website, where you can contact Wendy to learn more about the practice of story walking. This is DreamVision7 Radio Network. Uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow. <laughs>